0: This is CS50. Hello, world. This is episode two
1: of the CS50 podcast. My name is David Malin, and I'm here with... Colton Ogden. Uh, You know, in the last couple episodes, just to get us kicked off here, um, we've had this theme of robocalls. And recently, I haven't been receiving any robocalls, at least not as much. How about you? I'm sorry. Yeah, I've stopped calling you. (laughs) <laughs> I haven't actually. After uh, our our scintillating
0: segment on episode zero of uh, CS Fifty podcast, I actually installed an app that theoretically filters out some calls. I don't know if it's actually been working, but I have gotten zero robocalls in at least the past week, which what, is pretty remarkable. What is the app? Uh, it's something from uh, my carrier. You just downloaded it from the App Store, and it, and it just works. But apparently iOS, the operating system running on iPhones, has some kind of support for these third-party apps so that your calls get temporarily routed to the app. It then decides,
1: yay or nay, this is spam, and then lets it through or not. So this is kind of similar to that Google service they provided, where you would have a you would have Google basically act as a broker between you and someone trying to contact you.
0: I suppose. this is This is client-side, though. This is local to your phone, I believe. So it's your phone making these judgments, even though the, the phone app contacts a server to find out the latest blacklist
1: of phone numbers that are known to be spam callers. OK, so a little more secure. You're not you know, putting things necessarily all on the hands of somebody else but it's still solving the problem in kind of the same way. kind of a Reducing level of, it, at least. Yeah, because... Level of indirection. Yeah,
0: indeed. And as I've said before, I mean, frankly, I could filter out 90% plus of my robocalls by just ignoring anyone who has the same first six digits as my phone number. Because this is, again, a sort of scheme that people use to trick you into thinking like a neighbor is calling. Right, And for those unfamiliar, a robocall is typically a phone call generated programmatically these days by software or by some kind of computational process that's actually calling you automatically as opposed to it being a human
1: on the other end of the line. Or David writing a script in front of uh, I 100%. told you I'd stop and I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, away from the robocalls, because uh, we definitely touched on that a lot in the last couple weeks. Um, one other thing that we have touched a lot on and is still ha- coming to haunt us is uh, news regarding Facebook and the sort of security... Uh, faux pas they've been committing in recent past, in the recent past. Um, That's a very nice way of putting it, the Facebook the faux pas. Uh, the um, faux pas. The, the thing that they recently did was that, and there's a couple things we have here on our docket, but one of the things that we'll start with is the plain text ordeal. And they had claimed, supposedly, they they had 10,000 or 100,000 plain text passwords, Um, but it turns out they actually had a few more than that. Oh, it was like 11,000 or 12,000? No, it was millions.
0: Millions of passwords stored in plain text? Millions, Instagram and Facebook. Jeez, that's a lot of passwords. And you'll recall that this is apparently the result, as best people can glean, of some kind of logging process or something like that, where it's not an attack per se. It was just some poor internal process that was writing these things to in the plain text to log files. But of course it might gather from the articles that I've seen that this has been happening maybe since like 2012 in some cases. Indeed. And I think the risk there, because correct me if I'm wrong they haven't required all such users to change their passwords, at least not That's yet. That's correct. Though they're notifying folks. But even then, if this, this, if this data were sitting on servers for that many years you can't help but wonder how many humans may have had access and even if they didn't use the information information at the time. Maybe they did. Maybe they only accessed one person's account. It's really hard to know. So how do you think about situations like this where you know your password may have been exposed, but not necessarily?
1: I think the safest route is just to change it. Mm -hmm. I I don't, I mean, it depends on how private and how, you know, valuable that information is to you, Mm -hmm. how much you're willing to, it's a, you know, it's a cost benefit analysis type of deal. Um, And I think when it comes to personal information, I don't think it's necessarily ever, You know, bad to be too safe, right? Yeah, that's fair. Well,
0: and I think especially if you're already practicing best practices and not using in the first place the same password on multiple sites, because I could imagine someone being reluctant to change their password if they use it everywhere. Now, that alone, we discuss in CS50, is not a good thing, but I do think
1: there's some realities out there where people might be feeling some tensions, like, oh, I don't want to do this again. And there are certainly tools that help mitigate this problem, too. Password managers, Mm -hmm. which I don't know if we've talked about on the podcast, but certainly in in certain lectures, we talked about it before.
0: Yeah, we've encouraged this, and we've provided CS50 students here at Harvard, for instance, with access to uh, such programs for free. 1Password is a popular option. LastPass is a popular option. Now, by beware, literally, because there have certainly been cases where password managers have themselves been flawed, which is sort of tragic if the whole point of this is to protect you. But humans make mistakes. Humans write software. And so that's inevitable. But the idea of a password manager, of course, is that at least now you can have longer, harder to guess passwords and trust your software to store it for you rather than your own human brain and, and, God forbid, the Post-it note on your monitor.
1: True, yeah. One of the features that most password managers, including ones that we've uh, advocated, Employ is the generation of very hard to guess passwords. Yes,
0: I use that all the time. I mean, I don't know ninety nine percent of my passwords these days because I let the software generate it pseudo randomly, and then I use that to log in. But there's of course a risk there, right? Like most of these programs have master passwords, so to speak, whereby all of your passwords, however many dozens or hundreds you have, are protected by one master password. And I think the presumption is that that master password is just much longer, much harder to guess, but it's only one really long phrase that you, the human, have to remember.
1: Right. It's still a single point of failure. If you if that is. gets compromised, if someone gets access to that, they get access to every single password that you have stored in that database.
0: Honestly, or if you just forget it. I mean, there's definitely been occasions where, not in the case of my password manager, some accounts I just don't use for very long, and the memory fades. So even then, these tools do encourage you, though, to store some kind of backup codes or recovery codes, as they're often called. Literally, the kind of thing you might print on a printout and then store in a vault, a safe, under your mattress, just somewhere separate from the tool itself.
1: Right. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to be a hundred percent safe, but certainly it's a step I think in the right direction. Definitely a step above post-it notes. Yes, I think we yes. can agree on that. Yes. I don't use the post-it notes anymore. <laughs> the uh, another thing off of the heels of that. And that was uh, off of a topic we talked about last week. It turns out Facebook was actually asking for people to provide them not their Facebook password, um, but their email password, their actual, completely separate from Facebook, email password to log in. So that Facebook could act as a sort of broker for them and log in and verify their account. Indeed. And I think we already concluded last episode that that's not really the best practice. Not a good move. Facebook actually uh, also admitted that that was a bad move.
0: But fortunately, nothing came of it and all was
1: well. Uh, mm, uh, yeah. No, actually, it turns out that Facebook accidentally... Uh, quote unquote imported I think it was about 15,000 might be more than that uh, per the vert, well, next
0: week it's going to be 15 million right one point <laughs> sorry I
1: I, I, miss, I misspoke 1.5 million folks email contacts that's mean, a lot uh, And this was this was supposedly an accident as part of their upload process for you know this actual brokership um, but it's you know are we really that surprised?
0: Oh, I mean, here too, like humans make
1: mistakes, humans write software. And
0: so even if this weren't deliberate, these things do happen. But to be honest, I will... So in that case, the email... Uh, vector is the fundamental problem, logging into someone's email account, thereby giving them access to context, whether it was Gmail or Yahoo or the like. I mean, that is just that alone should never have happened. But it's gotten me thinking, and you and I were talking before the podcast today, too, about how the permissions model in software these days really isn't making this problem any better. So, for instance, in iOS, the operating system for iPhones, there is in Swift and in Objective-C, a function, essentially, that you kindly looked up that allows you to request access, as an application, to a user's contacts. And my concern, at least, the deeper I've dived into this, is that it's all or nothing. It's all of the contacts or none of them. There's no fine grained permissions, which makes me very nervous. Because if you have dozens, hundreds, thousands of contacts in your address book, and maybe you want to call someone via WhatsApp or via Skype, or you want to use some game that uses your social network, you can't, it seems, provide granular access to those contacts saying, OK, here's Colton's name and phone number, and email address, because I need you to know that in order to talk to him. But instead, it just opens up the possibility that all of your contacts get uploaded to that third party. And honestly, that's the sort of cat that once it's out of the bag is not going back in. Because if they store those contacts in their database, you're never getting them back. It's kind of like a drinking from the fire hose analogy. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, that's really worrisome. And I think until consumers and users start demanding finer grain control over the data, things might not change. And so here too, I'm surprised that Apple, especially who's been more mindful perhaps than some other companies of privacy, still have this all or nothing approach, right? I technically would imagine seeing a generic OS-specific prompt allowing me to browse through my contacts. I select one or two or more contacts, you among them, for instance, and then I would expect the API call to only pass along that subset of my data to the application. But instead, I'm pretty sure, as best we could tell from the documentation, it's getting unfettered read-write access to those contacts.
1: And um, I mean, my first thought about that is, It's so much easier just to click yes, you know, when Facebook or Apple says this app wants to use your contacts, do you allow permission? Um, Rather than, and the model you proposed is certainly more secure, uh, more fine-grained, but requires more effort on the end user's part. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you got me thinking that there's an opportunity here really for what
0: some municipalities in the U.S. have started doing with with governmental elections, where you don't just necessarily have a ballot, but you might have access to like a one-page cheat sheet for the candidates where each of the candidates has been allowed, as I've seen in Boston, for instance, uh, to give like a one or more sentence uh, description of maybe their platform or something about them so that you can at least understand the implications. And more importantly, when there's ballot questions on the referendum, like uh legal questions, policy questions for the local uh, municipality, um, they often will explain or have a third party, an advocacy group, explain both the pros and the cons in ideally some neutral way so that the humans like we can vote on those issues and still have some appreciation for the implication. But instead, the analog here would be like asking someone to vote on a a governmental question and just saying yes or no, that's it. There's no fine-grained disclosure of the implications. So it would be nice, too, if Android and Apple really adopted the habit or forced companies who wanted to distribute software on those platforms to say, What does it mean if I click yes? And maybe have a third party group or
1: community of third parties responsible
0: for writing that language, not necessarily the companies themselves. That's
1: true, yeah. Because on Facebook, when you approve apps, you can see what it has access to, but not necessarily for what intended purpose. Yeah, indeed. And I, that's fair. In the web context, uh, companies that use
0: OAuth, a very popular protocol for authentication, GitHub, for instance, among them, does give you a bit more detail as to. To what's being asked. This company is asking for your email address and your name and so forth. But even then, unfortunately, it tends not to be fine grained opt in or out for the user. If you don't say yes to everything that's listed there, you just don't proceed further.
1: Yeah, presumably because they need all those pieces of information to give you the service you're requesting, which is Or us. want. I mean, yeah. they probably make
0: a calculated decision that, eh, we don't really need this field, but it would be useful to have. We might as well get it when the user consents in the first place. And they place. figure
1: maybe most users aren't going to sort of balk to too hard at, you know, having to give up one extra piece of information. Yeah, but that's a slippery slope, certainly. Oh yeah, absolutely, and it kind of ties into the idea we talked about last week of you know there's you know you leave one little piece of trust at the at the door and behind you know you made the analogy you you look back and the breadcrumb trail is just you know vast. Oh, and I've absolutely
0: clicked yes on those things myself, and even though now I'm much more mindful, you know 2019 of what I click and what apps I allow access to my contacts, like the cat's out of the bag, and somewhere out there is a lot of that data already.
1: Yeah, it's a tough trade-off. Certainly, I do think a lot of it is come down to accessibility. I think it's I think it's preying on the how much easier it is for people just to click a button versus actually consider the problem that they're going getting into. But
0: to be fair, not necessarily praying. If the only API call I have is access contacts
1: or not, I as a developer, I'm going to use that API call. Yeah. True. Um, I guess away from that topic, away from Facebook, because we've been picking on Facebook a lot. The last few weeks, we've been picking on Facebook consistently, one week by week by week, and uh, it may just be a, a rough period for them. Uh, away from Facebook, there was another thing, interestingly, that I thought was actually a good move on Microsoft's part. So, Microsoft uh, recently turned down... Uh, let me just confirm 100% which institution it was. Um, okay, so it was, Californ- it was California. In California, there was a law enforcement agency who asked Microsoft to install essentially facial recognition uh, software in their cars, such that they would be able to identify presumably, uh, you know, prospective criminals or existing criminals. Yeah. And uh, they rejected it outright because it turns out the data sets were not trained very well on these algorithms.
0: Yeah, this is an issue in computer science more generally, especially if demographically it is skewed toward uh, male figures or white figures. The data sets you might be using to actually train your data in a machine learning sense might be people who look like you because they might be people who work with you, for instance. And so, frankly, to their credit, I think Microsoft seems to be acknowledging this proactively and mindfully so that the software is not deployed in a way where it might mistake one person for another until that data set is trained further. With that said, I do think this is still worrisome unto itself, even without bias. I'm not sure I just want every car on the street uh, that drives by me and you and everyone to be able to detect who that person is. That seems to be a very slippery slope as well in terms of people's privacy and so forth. Um, But I do think these are the right questions for companies now to be asking. And Google has been mired in a bit of this lately with their artificial intelligence panel. They wanted to have a panel of independent uh, individuals weighing in, yay or nay, on what kinds of initiatives initiatives Google should pursue when it comes to artificial intelligence sounds like Microsoft is exercising here some of that same judgment but You know, it's it's one thing I think for these big companies to be have the luxury of saying no to certain business. Frankly, I can't help but worry that as AI and as facial recognition becomes more accessible, as it becomes more API based, so that anyone can use it, I you know I wonder and worry that we'll lose the ability to say yay or nay in quite the same ways if it's just so accessible to anyone who wants to deploy it.
1: Yeah, a lot of this technology is very frightening, Um, and it's Microsoft is definitely being very considerate in their judgment. um, and thinking very far ahead, one of the things, uh, sort of related to this, not necessarily completely related to this incident in particular, um, is the deep faking. Are you familiar with this? Where where mm, like the video? Pro- yeah. yeah, people can be faked uh, algorithmically. Machine learning algorithms can train um, can train themselves to generate a video that looks like somebody speaking um, when in reality it was actually their face, but being programmatically adjusted to be speaking yeah. somebody else's words.
0: And it certainly works even more easily with. Words alone, when you don't have to mimic their movements.
1: Yeah, their gesticulations. Um, there was a thought that I had recently about things like CCTV. You know, we, a lot, law enforcement relies a lot on CCTV footage, closed circuit television. For those unfamiliar, right? So if they if they see a suspect, you know, or if they they there's a crime scene. Let's say it's at some some restaurant or some hotel, and they have CCTV video footage of a uh, of a the same person, sort of at, at the scene at the same time is maybe the same events took place, um, you know, that helps them pinpoint down that that might be a suspect. Now, That's like every Law & Order episode. Right, <laughs> exactly. But it, but the, the thing with the deep faking is that uh, it could be all too real that, you know, these sorts of videos get edited to actually... Uh, put not the actual actors in there yeah absolutely
0: and I think right now most people ourselves included can notice like "Eh, something's a little off here but honestly the software is only going to get better the hardware is only going to get faster so I agree I think this is becoming more and more real and it literally is a a computational way of putting words in someone else's mouth one of the first proof of concepts I think a couple few years ago now was having President Obama say things that he hadn't actually said and it was striking and it wasn't quite right you could tell it seemed a little robotic but it was the beginning of something quite scary. And I at least most recently saw the the graduate students who had published the work on them dancing and transposing one human's dance movements onto another, even though that second person wasn't actually dancing. They appeared to be.
1: Yeah, it's very frightening. It makes me wonder how we're going to actually get better at detecting the real versus the fake when it comes to this, or whether we're going to have to sort of leave the realm of video footage as evidence altogether if it gets too realistic. Indeed, for future CS50 podcasts, I don't even need to be here. You can just, <laughs> I'll just, uh, yeah, Have I'll me just, say astute things yeah. digitally. You're going to have to get the, vo- the uh, David J. Malin voice algorithm there you go. implemented. Well, fun
0: fact on Mac OS and probably on Windows,
1: there are commands where you can actually have
0: your computer say things already. Now, they tend to be fairly uh, synthesized robotic voices, but uh, that's a fun little program to play on, uh, play with. In Mac OS, uh, if you have a terminal window open, you can type the command say, S A Y, and then a phrase, and indeed it should say that.
1: Have you ever aliased anybody's computer to a, uh, say something at a particular time. I
0: don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) But if I were to, I might, when they leave their keyboard unattended, create what's called an alias in Linux or Mac OS, whereby one command actually gets substituted for another. And so a funny thing might be to do every time the person types ls to have preemptively aliased ls to be say, where the computer then says something mildly funny
1: and then proceeds to show the directory listing for them, um, that would certainly be theoretically possible. Um, Away from Microsoft. So, here's something actually completely uh, on the surface unrelated to what we might have been, at least in the tech realm, been talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's been this interesting study in Scotland. So, in Scotland, as of 2008, they started to employ a checklist uh, for po- for surgeries. Um, and it was a World Health Organization sponsored checklist. And it was basically just a set of steps before, during, and after incisions, which just basically is a bunch of sanity checks, uh, dealing with the anesthesiologist, marking incisions where they're supposed to be made, um, asking, uh, having the nurse ask questions of the patient as they finish their surgery. And uh, startlingly, it looks like post-surgical deaths, as of the beginning of that up until now, in 2008, they fell by one third, 33%. Well, roughly 33%.
0: Really just making sure people were doing what they should have been doing, but providing a a protocol, if you will, for such.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think, I'm I'm no expert, uh, but I believe this is what the airline industry has actually done for some time. No matter how many times the pilot and co-pilot have flown a plane, my understanding is that they're indeed supposed to take out the the flight check list and actually check off verbally or physically every little step that should be checked before taking off.
1: I certainly hope so. Fingers
0: crossed. Well, you would hope so. But there too, right? You, if Someone's been flying for 5, 10, 20, 30 years. Perhaps you might assume that they they know what they're doing, but it, you don't want to miss that little thing, certainly. So I think the real takeaway for me is that this seems a wonderful adoption of a technique that's being used in other industries. And even us in our much safer realm uh, of you know an office use uh, programs like Asana or uh, 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 GitHub or Trello or a bunch of other websites or web-based tools that provide really checklists or Kanban boards or project boards, so to speak, where it's really just lists to help you keep track of things you and other people are working on.
1: Right, and I think it applies very well to things like software development, where you have, a, you know, the, the typical paradigm of software development, uh, at least uh, as is taught in university a lot of the time, is start with a, uh, a project spec up top, work your way down until you have individually solvable tiny pieces. Mm-hmm. Those seem to fit well into the model of tasks in the to-do list. So mm-hmm. it seems like in technology, this is a very appropriate way of uh, modeling how you, you know, build things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the, the interesting thing there, I think, is that there really are different mental models. Like, I pre- For instance, instance, I'm a fan of the checklist model, something like Asana.com, which we've used for a few years. Some of our TFs are now at the company. And it's it's just kind of the way my mind operates. It's how I would operate if I were still using paper, pencil. But I know a lot of other people prefer more project boards, where you have everything in column format. And as you work on something, you move things from left column to middle column to right column and so forth. And I tend to prefer the sort of top-down approach, but other people seem to prefer the side-to-side. So it's an interesting software design
1: question. Maybe the more, maybe it's... people that are more, um, Visually, more visually, spatially learning, or not, maybe not learners, but um, I guess workers or developers, maybe that just resounds better for them versus a checklist model. Everybody's, everybody's brain works a little bit differently, but there's certainly a, a breadth of options. Well, and the
0: project boards really allow for more states, so to speak, right? Like something like a checklist in Asana, or even in like uh, no, uh, Notes, the sticky program in macOS, where you can check things off. That's on or off, like done or not done, whereas the boards allow you to proceed to an intermediate state, another intermediate state, and then finally the final state. So I, I do see a use case there, certainly. So sometimes just checking things on and off makes perfect sense for protocols like checking that everything's gone well with surgeries, checking that everything is ready to go with an airplane. But for projects, you might actually want to say, "Well, we've begun, but we're blocked on this issue. This is in progress, but there are these bugs still."
1: So I think that that mental model makes sense in other use cases. Sure. Yeah, no, it's definitely cool. Definitely cool to see that something that simple was able to reduce. that. That's an amazing thing. 33%, uh, one third, uh, with something as serious as deaths. Yeah, it's Hope's a little worrisome
0: deaths. that they weren't having checklists beforehand. Yeah,
1: yeah, it makes you wonder a little bit.
0: But when n is large, so to speak, whether it's patients or data sets or the like, you really do start to notice those patterns. And so when you turn knobs, so to speak, and try interventions and really do experiments, can you really see the impact of those
1: results? Indeed. Um, so earlier, we talked well about Microsoft so let's, let's uh, you know, the theme of this podcast is that we don't always have the most optimistic things to talk about. So why don't we turn the knob in sort of the opposite direction? Well, no one writes articles that say everything was well this week. Yeah, yeah, not necessarily. Um, Microsoft did well with their facial recognition decision, but it turns out that they had a security vulnerability. So they have a service called Microsoft Tiles, which uh, is no longer in use, is my understanding, but was temporarily in a state of flux. So you might be able to speak on the sort of the low level details this a little bit better. But my understanding of this is they had a CNAME record, which is a canonical name record, which allows them to essentially point one URL, one subdomain URL to another URL and make it seem, it's basically like the alias in terminal. Yeah, so almost. you don't have
0: to hard code an IP address. It can resolve, so to speak, to another domain name.
1: Exactly. And they had an Azure domain that was C named to some other Azure domain um, that was actually serving the tiles information, the tiles being those sort of uh, square widgets that uh, was really famous with Windows 8, mm-hmm. um, where you could see services, um, icons, and do different things, send emails. And it uh, turns out that they were vulnerable to a subdomain takeover attack. Because the subdomain they were C named to um, was actually they lost ownership of it.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, I mean this is a risk anytime you start playing with DNS and you rely on a third party to implement some service of yours. And this happens all the time, frankly, with a lot of cloud-based services, some of which we ourselves have used. Whereby you might want to use your own domain, for instance, cs50.io, and you might want to use a subdomain therein, like foo.cs50.io, but have foo.cs50.io resolve to some third-party service where you have white. That they, uh, has white labeled their product for you. So you go to foo.cs50.io and you see CS50's version of that application. And if you go to bar.cs, well, if you go to bar.example.com, you see someone else's use of that same service. So DNS enables for this, but of course you have to trust that the underlying host is not going to change ownership, become malicious, or so forth. And so generally speaking, putting third parties within your domain or subdomain is, is not the safest practice, as it
1: sounds like they gleaned. Yeah, they were able to, the people that wrote the article, this was uh, golem.de, which is a German um, German website, um, German news group. They actually bought the domain and were able to push arbitrary content to these Windows Tiles yeah. services. Um, which is pretty, I mean, you can imagine if a bad actor got involved, uh, the types of phishing attacks they'd be capable of orchestrating with this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I don't doubt that
1: there are folks
0: out there who have little scripts running just checking when certain domain names expire, for instance, so that they can snatch them up and actually repurpose them. And this has happened even with source code libraries out there, where someone has turned over the keys, so to speak, to a popular open source library, and that second person has maybe injected some advertising into it, or even some malicious code. And if you have all of these other unsuspecting folks on the internet, depending on that third-party library, they might not even realize the next time they do an update of the library that someone else has taken it over and its intent has now changed. So, I mean, we talk about this a lot in CS50, the whole system of trust on which computing these days is built. Uh, There are a lot of threats that you might underappreciate until it actually happens to you. Trust was the theme of the last episode. Indeed, and it seems we can't get away from it. Uh, But of course, this is where all the articles are being written each week because there's a lot of threats out there.
1: Yeah, no, it's great that people are, and this was a good actor, it looks like, by the sound of the article. They bought the domain. They didn't orchestrate any attacks. They made it clear. They actually contacted Microsoft about it. Microsoft did not respond, Hmm. though they did delete the record. Um, So it's nice to know that people are looking out for all good intents and purposes. Maybe not uh, as proportional as the bad actors. It's hard to say. I would, I would imagine. Absolutely. Um, but it's good to see. It's good to see. And uh, I, I guess we'll end the podcast on a bit of lighter news. Um, not, not, I don't know. I think this was the best article this week. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good article. Um, but we, we do a lot of tech. Uh, I'm into games. There's been some cool game stuff going on recently. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things that uh, you actually noticed before stream was actually that Infocom, Uh, a company that was famous for producing a lot of text adventures in the 80s. Um, They actually open sourced a lot of their classic titles.
0: Yeah, or at least I think to clarify, a lot of the source code is available and someone open sourced it. I think it remains to be seen just how long it will stay alive. These games, to be fair, are decades old now and it's more of a historical interest I think than a commercial interest that people might have. But yeah, I remember as a kid in the 1980s, um, growing up with, we did have graphics and monitors but not all games used graphics uh, on those monitors. And so Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which folks might know by author Douglas Adams, is a wonderful book and a series about the same, Uh, there was a text-based adventure game whereby you type in commands and navigate a text-based world where you only know where you are and what you're looking at and where you can go based on the feedback you're getting textually from the program. And there was another one called Zork, which was very similar in spirit. And it had a map, not unlike the two-dimensional worlds you talk about in your games class, where you can go up, down, left, right, and so to speak uh, uh, virtually, but you can only do so by saying walk right or walk left or open door or the like. And the fun thing I think about it um, back in my day was it really did leave things to the imagination. And oh my god, was it probably easier to make these games because you can still have the storyline, you can still create the world, but you don't have to render any of that. You can leave it to folks' minds eye. So it's fascinating to look at some of these things written in a language called ZIL, Zork Implementation Language, which seems to actually be list-based, which is a functional language, though it's actually, I was reading, uh, I was going down the rabbit hole and reading some of the history. It's actually based on another language, in fact. But it's a fascinating way, if you poke around the repositories online of representing uh, a two-dimensional non-graphical world. So if you Google Infocom uh, open source games. Odds are it will lead you to the GitHub repository or any number of articles about the same.
1: Yeah, GitHub's amazing. I mean, there, there are a lot of other games on GitHub that are not officially um, released by the companies. People have reverse engineered games like Pokemon, for example. Amazing to read through a lot Pokemon, of Pokemon, that's
0: your generation.
1: Yeah. No, it's, it's good stuff, though. Um, we actually have a Pokemon piece set in the games course, too. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's very cool just how nice GitHub is in terms of making accessible a lot of things that are Things, I would say a lot of it you kind of have to learn through trial and error a lot of the times. If there's, you know, a lot of companies, especially in the 80s, didn't really release their game code in 90s, didn't really release their game code. Only in the 2000s and 2010s did game programming really start to become accessible.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's quite the thing to pick up. So hopefully that will engender all the more interest among aspiring programmers to actually contribute to those
1: kinds of things. And more recent is the PS5 was also announced. The PS5. Which is pretty cool. They're, PlayStation 5. Yeah, PlayStation 5, and they're actually gonna have built-in ray tracing as part of their GPU, which is pretty fascinating, where basically the camera shoots a ray of, not light, but a ray to basically look for the nearest object in space and calculate, you know, for every pixel on your screen, and, and they're gonna be in 8K resolution, so that's a lot of ray tracing. Um, but they're gonna be, they're, it's gonna be pretty interesting. I, I don't think, I've seen a GPU yet that has built-in ray tracing, so that might be the first, the first generation. Yeah, that sounds very complicated. I'm going to play Zork this week, <laughs> but no, it's cool. It's a nice little dichotomy there. But um, I think that's, I think that's all the topics we have this week. I mean, we covered the gamut really the, with a lot of the things we talked about, from here.
0: the sad to the happy. So we'll be curious to see what comes up again this coming. From the week. old to the new. There we go too. <laughs> so good. So thanks everybody for tuning in. Yeah, indeed. This was episode two of the CS50 podcast with David Malin and And Colton Ogden. Thanks for tuning in and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.